Welcome to PRN's Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lindman. My guest today is Rodney Shakespeare. We have lots on the plate to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, developments in uh, Minsk, the Ukraine situation. We'll talk about Greece. Uh, Greece is a very, very major story. Rodney has lots to talk about Greece, and I'm sure other issues as well will come up in the program. We'll cover as much ground as we can. Uh, Rodney, I must say, with what happened overnight in Minsk, uh, beginning on Wednesday, I don't know exactly what time, but continuing until around midday Thursday uh, in uh, Thursday time in Minsk, uh, early in the morning, uh, before dawn in New York, uh, uh, very much before dawn in New York, and I'm reminded, I, I generally write two articles a day, and I already put one out that I titled, uh, Don Bass, uh, 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 <laughs> Don Bass Conflict Ended in, in, in Minsk. Don't even remember my own title. A Don Bass, a Don Bass conflict resolution uh, in Minsk? Question mark. And a second one that I'm working on, I'll finish later, uh, is titled "What's Next in Donbass?" Well, I don't expect anything good coming next, but I'm reminded, Rodney, of uh, I was I wasn't there. I was, I was four years old at the time in the uh, late summer, early fall, 1938, when Neville Chamberlain went to Berlin and held talks with with uh, Hitler and came back uh, to London waving his infamous piece of paper, proclaiming peace in our time, and about a year later, World War II began. Uh, well, will World War III begin after the Minsk Agreement? Well, we don't know, but anything is possible. Yes, indeed. And, uh, Steve, there's so much to say on this. And, but if I may go back um, just a little bit to just a, a sort of few days ago, uh, for some background information... Um, which is quite extraordinary. Um, some of it was, in fact, today, and some of it two or three days ago. But I want to give you just two alleged facts, and they've come from via Russia today. And um, one of them, at least, was a translation of President Putin. Uh, the first one is that it was reported that uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany went to see uh, Putin, and she took with her a piece of paper, which was a report by German intelligence of the number of dead people in eastern Ukraine. Now, you, I suspect, and others have been working on a figure of about 5,000. It was 2,200 killed in Gaza, about 5,500 and, of course, you then, for those who've had their lives permanently wrecked with ghastly injuries, multiply by four or five. That's, say, 25 for those permanently wounded. And then it was about a million displaced. But the piece of paper that Merkel allegedly took to um, Putin from German intelligence was that the number of dead people in Ukraine, and that would have been in East, eastern Ukraine, was 50,000. Yeah. Yes. Now I wrote. Uh, yeah, I wrote about this. I wrote about this well, indeed. I mean, what can you say? 
And now comes another figure which was coming out this morning. Um, that in what's been going on and discussions have been so much, but there is a patch there where, here it comes, 68,000 Kiev troops were surrounded and still are surrounded. 68,000? I, I had 68, not heard that number. 68,000. Now, did someone, sometimes they get their maths wrong. Maybe it's 6,800. I've no idea how anybody knows that number, but that came out on Russia Today. Now, whether it will stay there or whether it will just quietly disappear, I don't know. But put the two figures together, Steve. And you can't have something on the, on the death scale of uh, 50,000 and with all the injuries, which would be, say, 250,000 and maybe still the same million displaced. You cannot get that sort of scale unless you've got war on a colossal scale. And certainly Russia today has been showing some absolutely ghastly scenes. But I think the two figures go together. If you accept the 50,000 for uh, Chancellor's uh, German intelligence as being, all right, so that's true, then it makes sense that you could have 68,000 surrounded by the um, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, people. Anyway, other things in the background... Um, it was a week or so ago that um, Putin was um, shutting off um, gas to Bulgaria, Greece, Macedonia, Croatia and Turkey and opening up a new route via Turkey. But what did Kerry, your Secretary of State, tell Bulgaria? He told them to wean itself off dependence on Russian energy. Now, quite how you wean yourself off in under five years in any way, I have no idea. But that told me something of complete unreality of Kerry and that the um, American department is playing some monstrous game of involving itself and playing some sort of geopolitical in its mind uh, game against Russia and not understanding putting the sanctions gaily on against uh, Russia, uh, refusing to tell the truth about MH17, which we now know was shot down uh, by Kiev, putting out lie after lie, and the, Russia has started to respond by cutting off uh, a gas. Uh, Russia is also doing much more selling in dollars and uh, buying uh, rubles. So put that as the background. It is hotting up, and... That leads immediately, those sort of uh, trade figures and trade consequences, explain why Merkel and Holland go rushing off uh, to see uh, Putin. And it noticed that the Americans weren't there. Now, Steve, I do think that the Americans are playing the hand via Kiev. And the American game is to put NATO right up against Russians' borders, and they don't really care a damn. And they're, they're willing to risk a world war. I mean, in Senator John Insane uh, McCain is typical, and so is Newland. They're prepared to do it. But it was interesting that the Europeans, very, very worried about the situation, are starting, and I only say starting, are starting to break free because they don't really have any choice, starting to break free from the malign influence, I'm sorry to say, of the USA in uh, this matter. So there you are. Those are my opening comments on what I don't think is a solution at the moment. 
I think it may have even been made worse by the uh, discussions which have gone on, but perhaps some, um, which we'll call discussions at this moment, um, but perhaps we'll get onto that in a minute. How do you respond to my opening remarks? Well, my greatest fear is exactly what you concluded with your last thought, Rodney, that we could end up in something that is a lot graver, a lot more serious than anything we've seen up to now. You know, I don't know what these people talked about in their private discussions, and uh, uh, it is true that, uh, that the agreement, and, uh, I, and I just discovered that the Financial Times has published the agreement, and I'm going to put out uh, an article crediting, citing the the Financial Times, it really won't be an article, it'll simply be a repetition of what they're reporting, but they're reporting what they call the full text of the Minsk Agreement. I included in my article this morning a lot of what I know is what they're reporting, but the agreement was not signed by Putin, Holland, Merkel, or Poroshenko. I believe it was signed by envoys, which could have been foreign ministers or other officials of these governments. There was a separate statement, simply a statement, not an agreement, that, that, that I guess had the signatures of the leaders, but it's a statement which means nothing more than a statement, certainly not binding. So I expect a lot worse trouble ahead than what we're seeing now. And America, of course, was not a part of these discussions directly, but I've said many times in articles that uh, Donbass is Obama's war. Everything that's gone on in Ukraine since before the, the trouble began, over a year ago in November, New, November 2013, when the protests first began, and then, and then the Madan killings in February of uh, 2014, all of this was U.S. mischief. Washington's dirty hands were on everything. And Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, uh, Victoria Nuland, admitted admitted that over the last 20 years, Washington spent over $5 billion to oust the Ukrainian government, you know, a, a, a color revolution, and put in a pro-Western government. They did it in 2004, Orange Revolutionary One. Yanukovych was ousted then. He was re-elected, I believe, in 2010, and then ousted again in 2014. I'm certain he won't be re-elected again. I guess you can't be certain of anything, but he's Outset a second time, we've got these neo-Nazis running things in Kiev, supported by Washington, and I absolutely believe that everything going on in Ukraine, all of the key policies, are controlled out of headquarters in Washington with Poroshenko, this oligarch president, being nothing but a Washington stooge, this uh, Yatsenyuk, the uh, prime minister, appointed by Washington, and the other key people appointed by Washington, the farcical elections they were held, no meaning whatsoever. And whatever is going to happen in the future will be what Washington wants. And I, and I know Washington does not want peace. It wants war. And Ukraine is the pretext. And I've said that in many articles, Rodney. And Russia is the target. Regime change in Russia, ideally not by war, but I put nothing past these lunatics that are running policies in Washington. You know, you've got the sanctions going on now. They could, they could have much, much tougher sanctions. They could do all kinds of things politically and economically to Russia. I mean, Putin will only take so much before responding. But, you know, wars begin this way, and one thing happens and leads to another to another, and all of a sudden you get yourself into a real mess, and there's a, a strong possibility. I don't know that it will happen. I certainly am not predicting it will happen, but there's 
certainly is a possibility we could end up in another major war, a global war. There could be a nuclear war. And I've said this so many times in articles I've written, Rodney. Okay. Now, I'm going to home in on uh, just one of your, of your many splendid points. But one of them was that the agreement is not signed, to which I'm going to say, and it wouldn't matter if it was signed, because you look back at how this really started and how those extraordinary votes started uh, in Crimea and in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, the pressure was that not only to wipe out the Russian language, but effectively you were seeing the building of genocidal policies. And a population uh, frightened for its survival uh, started to react in the way that it did react. Of course, they had to take a decision ultimately uh, whether they were going to stay in Ukraine in some form of federated federation or uh, simply be taken over and protected by Russia. But the reality is that I feel is that the eastern Ukraine population now definitely wants strong autonomy. But those who were signing, or rather, as you've pointed out, not signing the document, are not the ones who were with effective power on uh, the ground. Um, if you were in Luhansk and the figures are 50,000 dead, and that's 250,000 ghastly wounded, and you know all the displacement. Would you ever, ever be able to trust Poroshenko and the fascist forces in the West again? Of course you wouldn't. And so all these documents about pulling back and heavy the weapons and back to this line and that line, it all depends upon whether the East feels that they are bodily secure, not just linguistically secure or psychologically secure, bodily secure. And when you've had, we can't sit here in our armchairs uh, or an American State Department and say, well, this or that, um, we won't say the American State Department, so we're saying the Chancellor in Germany, and say this or that. When you've had that number of deaths, that sort of thing goes on in bitterness and memory for generations and understandably so. So I don't think that they've actually addressed the issue, which is the complete and utter security of those in the eastern part who've now suffered on much too large scale. And Steve, there's so many other issues. Is What about the border between Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, Russia? Who is going to control that border and why? Because, you see, those two, uh, we call them uh, divisions, if you like, of, of Ukraine, they will never feel secure whilst they can be surrounded and controlled by Kiev. And Kiev is only binding time at the moment. Goodness me, if you've had, what's his figure, 68,000 troops surrounded... Um, and the word is is that there's been a lot of military loss by Kiev, etc. They're buying, buying, um, trying to buy time before in come these so-called American defensive arms, which are probably going to be tanks and uh, rocket launchers and God knows everything else under the sun. So I see no security for the people of the East. I do think they want to stay within Ukraine, but it will have to be with virtual 
virtual separative borders. And, I mean, a demilitarized zone, I mean, I ask you, who's going to actually uh, be in that zone? And then what happens if it's breached, e.g., by um, tanks and weapons coming across from um, Kiev with the intention of wiping out Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, I'm afraid it seems to me all of it at the moment is that they're starting to talk. There's some measure towards peace, a bit like the, I was going to say the Nazi-Soviet pact, um, in which they were both buying time. Well, certainly Kiev wants to buy time as it builds up military and does that with American support. Uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, I don't probably want to buy time because they do not feel secure and they've taken these colossal uh, losses. So I'm saying that you've not seen security for the East. You've not seen the issue, which is that Russia is going to be, has to be the only guarantor of the security of those in the East. And that Poroshenko is the most ghastly thug. He's made it quite clear he has every intention of eventually of wiping out the people in the East. Oh, he said it. He has said it, and I've quoted him verbatim. Uh, It's been, oh, a number of weeks or even longer, Rodney, but he's used the expression, crushing the people of Donbass. Oh, he's used every expression, Steve. He's used every expression. So you can get rid of your translations. He's probably exhausted the possibilities of translation. They're all in violent language, and the only meaning of it is death. Death. Uh, for the people of the... Sorry to interrupt you, Steve. No, go right ahead, Rodney, please. <laughs> no, no, he's used absolutely a violent language, and and he, he he's able to do that because his position is that he's backed by America. It's the same as Israel. Israel does what it likes because if it knows it's backed by uh, uh, um, Israel, backed by the USA, it can do that. And the same with Poroshenko. So it really gets down to... Um, in some respects, the situation is still being decided in Washington. If, um, if Obama decides to accept that the behavior of Kiev is such that there has to be, at the very least, a very strong federation, that's to say, with enough physical power uh, lying in the hands of uh, the two regions so that they can protect, if necessary, against military advance. That's what it really gets down to. And if they can't do that, that they've got a guarantor in Russia. Though at the moment, I'm afraid, it sounds to me all like pie in the sky. And, um, well, uh, I think it possibly means that the thing, unless um, President Obama is going to show some sense and, and pull off the dogs of war, uh, but he may not have sufficient power within the political American political structure to do that. If he decides to pull off the dogs of war, then you could get a settlement with strong federation powers. But if we don't have that, and if Obama and uh, pushed by Nerland and McCain and crew, if he doesn't pull off, then I'm afraid you're going to Russia will be forced to defend those regions. You cannot go on with this death threat. It's an absolute outrage. I mean, is German intelligence right or wrong? Well, there you are, Steve. I feel a little bit angry about it. Oh, I'm I'm very concerned about the whole business. Uh, uh, I wrote this article. I began very early, Rodney, and I must say... uh, 
this was one time that I had to keep making changes, uh, changing what I originally wrote because new reports were coming out, updating things that I wrote that became inaccurate. So uh, I, 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 like to, I like to highlight uh, media reports when I cite them, AP, Reuters, New York Times, and so on. I didn't use the, I don't, I didn't use the New York Times this time. I used the Wall Street Journal twice, AP twice, Reuters twice, and instead of highlighting them, I simply mentioned what the, each of them said at first, and then a, a follow-up report updating what they said earlier, bringing it up to date, making it more accurate as of that time. And I imagine right now, Rodney, there's even more information. So maybe what I wrote in part is dated, and there'll have to be new information that'll come out. But the important thing isn't what went on in Kiev. It's what's going to happen going forward. It's the policy measures that will be adopted in Washington, instituted by the Stooge regime in Kiev. And as you do, Rodney, I I fear that we're heading into a much, much greater storm than we've seen so far. And what Putin intends to do about this or what his plans are, I don't know. But he has to realize that that, that nothing is settled from what happened in, 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 Min, in Minsk up to midday uh, today in Minsk. I've got to stop oh. and think what time it is there now. It's hours later in the day now. I mean, see, there are 15 points uh, which have come out in the, in the, the agreement. Uh, they include a withdrawal of heavy, heavy weapons from the current contact line, uh, Donbass forces to withdraw behind the September 19th Minsk uh, contact line, Withdrawal to begin this, OCSE monitors, and all of it is absolute pie in the sky. Because, you see, unless there is heavy military protection for those in the east, they are going to get wiped out. And so, I mean, an agreement by March the 20th on municipal elections in some areas. I'm like, you can't make this up. Uh, Cancelling. All political and military decisions relating to conducting anti-terrorist operations. That's um, that's a, a, a Kiev word. Yes. Um, enacting, <laughs> enacting Kiev legislation prohibiting the prosecution and punishment of persons involved in the Donbass uh, conflict. I mean, it's all absolute pie in the sky when you look at the situation on the ground for those who have suffered and died and uh, i mean terrible suffering going on in, in that area in in the east so steve i'm afraid um, to the disarming of all groups illegal groups illegal groups i tell you the most illegal group it's ruddy kiev they overthrew a democratic society with the help uh, of 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 the Americans, so all of it, I'm afraid, pie in the sky, and it could be they have made the situation worse because when this lot blows up again, as I think it will, um, well, no one will have any faith at all. The uh, the only good thing in it, Steve, is that Holland and Merkel have actually managed to do something by themselves on behalf. Of, if you like, of um, of France and Germany, and if, if you like, on behalf of Europe, they're probably reacting. I mean, the Spanish farmers have been very badly hit by Russian sanctions, or Russian responses. Um, so they're they're beginning to assert Europe a little bit, but I'm afraid they've not asserted strongly enough and decided to go in hard. And oh, one last point: the latest is that Ukraine has been allowed. I think it's um. I can't quite find 
the figure here, but um, yes, I've got it here. Um, the IMF is going to lend $17 billion to a completely bankrupt uh, Ukraine. So they're up to the old trick, of course, of um, uh, smashing it apart and selling off all its assets to, to the foreigners. You, you so, know, I saw, I saw that, Rodney, and the uh, IMF uh, agreed to loan Kiev $17 billion last year. I don't know if this is $17 billion more or if this is simply uh, uh, restating the old agreement. But, of course, the money doesn't go into the Ukrainian economy. It goes to pay off bankers, you know, servicing debt. Uh, immediately so, servicing debt. And, Steve, you should, if you've got a moment, you should look at the announcement. Who's the name of that woman who's the head of the IMF? She's the French woman. Anyway, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, um, what's her name? <laughs> Lagarde, is it? Christine Lagarde. Uh, you should... Listen, listen. Don't worry about whether it's a, a repeat of something. Just look at her face as she makes the announcement. Oh, she's and a criminal. She's absolutely. A criminal. <laughs> she was gloating her head off um, because they know that they're putting money into a situation where it will go, as you say, straight paying back the, 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 the debtors and at the same time putting Ukraine into debt and the selling off of assets. It's all disgraceful stuff, Stephen Lemon. Okay, so perhaps then we ought to sort of start moving on into other oh, areas. Let's, let's move on to the, to the other dismembered country, which is Greece. And, uh, and you have a lot to say about Greece, and I'm very eager to hear it. Well... You perhaps ought to put the subject of Greece into the wider context. And that wider context is that Greece just happens to have an election at this moment. And it just happens to be a very badly off. And it just happens to have been rather more deceived by Goldman Sachs and its agreements. And as a result, the, um, the reaction in Greece is, is rather stronger than it is elsewhere. And as regards to my justification for that, uh, this morning, uh, and we were talking, you know, two or three hours ago from um, me, I'm, where, where are we, about half past four or something, London time, um, the, uh, the Greek prime minister torpedoed an agreement of sort of, sort of rough words between the economics minister and the European Commission, basically uh, saying in an absolute rage, you know, that we, we aren't going to sort of deal with you. Now, you could say that that was Sapiris responding to extremists in his own government, but it's not. It's because the whole thing is about the collapse of a system. And there are those who are clinging on to it, because their salaries and their status and their psychology, psychology are all involved in it. And yet more widely, there is this increasing recognition that the whole thing is going down the tubes. And Greece is only sort of the upfront example. Look at Italy. Uh, in Italy, you're on 25% unemployment and double that or more for young people. In Spain, 25% unemployment, double that or worse, 60 or 70% for young people. And in all these employment figures, remember, Steve, that the same thing is happening in Europe as is happening in the UK, is that the new jobs are not what you might call traditional blue-collar 
well-paid jobs. They're all of them uh, low-paid jobs, insecure jobs, and everybody is, is everybody's feeling insecure, uh, particularly now in the middle classes as well. And the same is these in the USA, if you haven't got the same response. So context is Greece, yes, uh, but then Podemos in Spain. Uh, think what Beppo Grillo is saying. Of the, he's the five-star movement man in Italy. He is saying uh, Greece and Spain first. Uh, Spain second and Italy third. I expect this is all to do with the dates of elections. Anyway, now let's look at some of the things which are going on uh, within Greece. Well, significantly, we were talking about um, Ukraine and uh, the um, uh, the movement, the, the government in Greece is saying uh, solidly uh, that they know that the West was lying about the shooting down of that plane in, in Ukraine and that they know full well that the West is pushing to uh, put NATO right up against uh, Russia and to dismember Russia if they can. So point number one with the new uh, Greek government, uh, the Syriza government, is that they are supporting uh, Russia and they're not sellouts of that. Now, they have a list of 40 um, um, policy things. And the interesting one is actually number one. It's a bit like the American situation where you can talk about this and that, but the thing that you really want is simply an audit, an audit of your federal bank, and you can start from there. Well, the Greeks are auditing, number one, their first demand above everything else is to audit how much public debt there is and uh, then to sort of go from there. Um, their number two, though, is, I think, the crux of the matter. It's the demand that the rules be changed for the European Central Bank so that it finances states, that's to say finances states like Greece, and programs of public investment. Now, as you and I have discussed before, it's not just one way by which you can do that. There are seven methods of uh, getting money out into the economy. And all that's happening at the moment is the money is coming from the European Central Bank and it's immediately going into rising asset prices, particularly rising house prices, rising stock exchange prices. And it is not in any way going out into the hands of the mass of the population so that they have jobs, so they start to feel secure again. And because of that, you have this great political build-up. Um, last night, uh, I was a meeting, no, well, it was yesterday morning, I was, there's another meeting, uh, and I was being asked by young people, who do I say that they should vote for? And um, although the meeting had been admirably chaired by a Liberal Democrat lord, I had to say to them that the only way that you can now protect your future is that you've got to try to give some sort of political shock. And in the UK, voting for the Conservatives, the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrat is not going to give you an addressing of the economic failure which is going on right the way throughout Europe and throughout the Western world. The free market is not free. It is not efficient. It is not fair. It is building debt on a, debt on a huge scale. And its methods of austerity can no longer work. And that is what Syriza has addressed. And so Syriza is demanding a change in the role of the European Central Bank. And whatever that means in its detail, that is the hitting at the failure to look at the concerns 
and the situation of the mass of people who are starting to turn uh, nasty. Uh, number three, and there's 40, Steve, um, raise income tax to 75%, etc., etc. Mm. Well, you can see that in the uh, Syriza movement and in its demands, there is going, rightly or wrongly, is going to be an attack on the uh, rich. Um, that is inevitable when you've got these horrific unemployment levels and the collapse of the national of the health services uh, in Greece itself. And when you get that, I mean, you This is pitchfork time, Steve. This is when the public go, not just we're going to hit somebody, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's right or wrong, that when you get those levels and that level of misery, you're sort of into French Revolution territory, and they start doing and saying anything. Whether it's practically not, you can see that the anger is uh, arising. And, and the same way, obviously, increased taxes on big companies, they say. But there's an interesting one at number six, and I want you to comment on this. Adoption of a tax on financial transactions. Mm. And, uh, oh, yeah, I can hear you. And a special tax on luxury goods. Well, let's leave out the special tax on luxury goods. What do you say about adoption of a tax on financial transactions? I'd say it's a That's... couple of generations overdue, Rodney. This is like the Tobin oh, tax. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> yes. I think the Tobin tax idea, uh, the uh, American economist, uh, was was basically a minuscule percentage-wise tax on financial transactions above a certain amount, so ordinary people would not have to pay this tax. You know, you buy a few shares of stock or sell it or whatever, or a few hundred shares or sell it. It's not it's not on transactions like that. I don't know what Greece is proposing, but I think Tobin proposed something where only the big guys, the big transactions, getting into millions and multi-millions of dollars they, they pay a minuscule amount in, in tax and it would raise an enormous amount of money and it really wouldn't cost these, these big traders all that much heartburn in the first place but of course the idea never went anywhere oh I would love to see that adopted in Greece yes but you see it's not just about hitting the big boys it's about the complete manipulation of market prices because you see what happens is the big traders uh, using their computers at split seconds can make thousands of contracts one way and they make thousands of contracts the other way and all the time they can shift the price that when they spot a slight trend they can accentuate it or slow it and this process which is gross market manipulation basically because they've got computer programs which are doing it it means that you're talking millions of contracts whose only purpose is to manipulate the thing and enable that one penny, a thousand pounds profit done over millions and millions, millions uh, profit to go towards the big banks like uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, so it's not about hitting the big boys. Um, it is about, about stopping the financial manipulation. Once they have to pay even a minuscule attacks on what are essentially millions of fraudulent computer contracts, that that would stop that. So this Robin Hood tax, I mean, fine calling it a Robin Hood tax, but in fact, it's an anti-market manipulation tax. And I'm very pleased to hear you say that it was two, two, two generations uh, too, too late. 
Um, Steve, number seven, you'll probably explode on this one. Um, prohibition of speculative financial derivatives. Now, my math, Steve, it stops at a billion. I want you to get that straight, okay? I know what a billion is. It may be different from the American billion, but I know what a UK billion is. I think it is. It's, I think it's a thousand million. But I'm very, very hazy when you start to go into trillions. You see, We're talking yeah. about many trillions, Rodney. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe hundreds of trillions. I mean, the amounts are absolutely staggering with these, these people. They, they leverage to ungodly amounts, 100 to 1, 200 to 1, 500 to 1. And, and, and so it's a win-win situation. If, if they win, they win. And if they lose, we lose, not them. Yes, but what I can tell you is this, that they're saying that the, the global economy, okay, not Europe, the global economy is roughly around about $75 trillion, yeah? But the total of the derivatives, as far as it's known, is a minimum of 10 times that. And when you go, that's about 750 trillion. When you go up to the 1,000 trillion, I believe you're into something called a quadrillion, Steve. Quite why a quadrillion, which I always thought was something to do with four, is a 1,000 trillions, which are a 1,000 millions, uh, billions. I don't know, but the point is that these are bets. And when one trader fails to honor the bets, that means another trader fails, and the whole thing can ricochet to the tune of ten times the global domestic, uh, the global annual product. So they're the Greek Syriza, whatever you say. They are profoundly worried at what could be. I mean, they're just basically saying they're scared that the whole damn thing will blow up, no matter what about Europe. Um, there are other things here, Steve. Um, they want to cut Greeks' military expenditures. God knows why the Greeks have to have large military expenditures. I suppose they'll say it's to do uh, with Turkey. But they're both members of NATO, and um, I'm not sure that the rest of NATO would take it. But anyway, cut military expenditures. Uh, raise the minimum salary. Now, that's interesting uh, because, you see, in Greece, if you are a young person and in a job part-time, your wage has collapsed to well below the minimum wage. Now, quite how they're going to do it in their situation, I don't know. But the poor in Greece are now in the terrible straits. Um, they're going to uh, use buildings of the government for the, and the church and, and the banks for the homeless. I love that one, using the buildings of the banks for the homeless. But, Steve, in the UK, we, I mean... We, we, We've got near where I live, there are acres and acres and acres of new building going up, all of it being bought uh, by um, billionaires in China and India and probably some even Russia um, and Saudis and, and the rest of them as bolt holes, you see, in case everything goes wrong in their own country. Uh, but the, the poor in the UK, they no longer having any deal at all as regards homelessness. And it's the same in, um, in Greece. So go for it, uh, Syriza, and use the banks. And that line about the church. Well, the churches traditionally have always been shelter for the homeless in, in most countries. But that line about using the banks for the homeless it gives a bit of bite to it, Steve, doesn't it, right? 
and, and it's a nice flavor to it, indeed, indeed. I, I, I like your your uh, mention of the pitchforks earlier, Rodney. I simply can't imagine why there aren't pitchforks all over the West just ousting these rogue governments that, that have just, just raped and pillaged ordinary people. I mean, consign unknown millions to poverty, including in America, the richest country in the world, with a poverty level I remember quoting from the New York Times some time ago, uh, going to Census Bureau, uh, saying that the poverty level in America is either half the the households in the country are bordering on it. So people, households in America, half of them are either impoverished or bordering on it. And 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 the income you need to stay above the poverty line, which hasn't been revised in many years, something like twenty twenty two or twenty three thousand dollars in a city like Chicago for a family of four. My God, you'd starve to death. You'd be living on the street practically with an income like that. I don't know that you could get by with, without double that amount, at least in a city like Chicago. The expenses are horrendous. And even in my own situation, Rodney, I'm supposed to be getting free Medicare. You know, the contract I signed when Medicare began in the mid-1960s, I was right there on day one. I was there at the beginning, and the deal was I paid my premiums, and when I retired at age 65, or earlier at 62 if I chose, I chose 65, I would get free medical care. Well, my free medical care costs a fortune. Yes, and um, I'm afraid um, the the great fact about the USA is that um, uh, in terms of longevity, you are about 44th in the world. In terms of how much you pay, as in what you are paying now and you've been sold down the street, is that the American health system costs roughly twice as much as other countries' systems, uh, you're about 19% of your GDP. Oh, absolutely. And I can remember and writing about that, where America, uh, the cost of healthcare in America is double. Just take Western Europe, double, double the cost in Western Europe, and, um, and, and so many Americans get rotten health care in Obamacare, either because they're underinsured or, or, or they, they end up in emergency rooms or they end up in, in, in certain hospitals where they get minimal care or maybe even, even don't get care at all unless they're able to pay more than the insurance they have covers, which isn't enough. It's, it's a terrible system, Rodney. Uh, I, I love the expression that Ralph Nader used a few years ago. He called it a pay-or-die system, and that's, that's essentially oh, oh. what it is. Whoa. Well, there, there you are. But anyway, let's uh, go, move very quickly on this because we've got another major subject to, to get through. Um, Syriza wants to nationalize the banks. Um, and that is interesting. I mean, you can nationalize for this purpose and nationalize for that purpose. But um, that is interesting exactly what they mean of it. But very clearly, Steve, they are proposing some sort of very radical solution. Whether it will end up as a sort of a more traditional solution or something more original, uh, which is what is actually needed, I don't know. But certainly they are going for it. And you can understand why... Um, um, uh, Cipras, the, the, the Prime Minister, this morning torpedoed, effectively torpedoed any agreement at all uh, with, the, uh, with the Troika. Um, there, other things are um, things like equal salaries for men and women. Um, they're putting the boot in very heavily on the church. Uh, referendums on treaters 
and other accords with Europe. My goodness me, there must be some anti-Europe forces uh, within that Syriza uh, coalition. Um, demilitarization of the Coast Guard, uh, elimination, oh, here we are, Steve, elimination of payments by citizens for national health uh, services. Well, yes, mm. um, now, I mean, either you, you do, either you have it free at the point of service. Essentially, what they do, that is the situation in the UK. It's not quite true, actually. There are some small prescription uh, charges now, and there are some things that you have to pay when you have dentistry and, and things. So we've got rid of the principle of completely free, but compared with what you pay in America, goodness me. But here you are, they're hitting on that one because the Greek health service has essentially collapsed for most uh, people. And then there's one pie in the sky here, negotiation of a stable accord with Turkey. The Turks under Erdogan are absolute swine, Steve. They're going to try to smash up, uh, become top in the neighborhood. They, after getting rid of their policy of peace with everybody, they've become absolutely aggressive. The Turks are behind ISIS and Daesh in exactly the same way as the Israelis and the Americans are. Now, Steve, I can well, we I agree with you on that, now? absolutely. <laughs> Of course, uh, Turkey, a NATO country, uh, uh, as, uh, as is Greece. Uh, Greece is a NATO country. I believe Greece uh, is a NATO oh, country. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, uh, Turkey, of course, a NATO, uh, a, a NATO country and uh, directly responsible for funneling uh, IS fighters across the border to fight the, the Syrian government. Of course, that's another topic entirely. But the, well, uh, the Erdogan government is, is corrupt and rotten and despotic, and maybe we can devote a, few, a future program to talking more about that. The only thing I like about Erdogan is uh, a little friction he has with Israel. Uh, Steve, he has the friction. He did this dramatic stuff when the Israelis were shooting people in the forehead on the Mavi Mara. Yes. That yes. was that boat. But the actual trade between Israel and Turkey is massively increased. The figures came out about two days ago, and I can't remember them, but you're seeing massive trade. I think you'll find that um, uh, Erdogan talk, talks with a forked tongue. Oh, I, I agree with that, too. Right? I, I always say, forget about what the politicians say. Look at the policies. Find out what the policies are. See what's actually going on. And absolutely ignore every word out of their mouths. And it's never truer about anybody than Obama, who is the most serial liar I've ever run into in an American president. All the American presidents are liars. But, but, but Obama took the, the art of lying to a higher level than I've ever seen before. I, I can't think of a, a single truthful statement he's made on something important, something important. Well, it's all one lie after another. I, I did an article on his speech, and I headed it, uh, POTUS, hocus, <laughs> hocus, hocus. <laughs> I better explain that. I, oh, I, I, I like that. I wish I had thought of that one myself. <laughs> hocus, pocus. I... Is, it, is that a witch's spell originally? But anyway, it means it's a, a sort of fun phrase for meaning nonsense. Now, I wonder oh, can, cons- I, can, I, can I ask you one thing? It strikes Try. me, and I may be wrong, I'm not an economist, and I could be wrong, but it strikes me that the only long-term solution for Greece, despite the immense short-term pain, is to get the hell out of the euro system and go back to the drachma and be a sovereign, independent country again. And I, I do understand that the short-term pain will be immense 
to do something like this. But in but in the longer term, it's 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 the way to cure the patient. If you don't take the painful medicine, you're going to be stuck with this awful system. And I can remember writing about the insanity of combining with 17 countries. I think I think it may be 19 countries now in the euro in the euro system. But combining countries like Greece, this tiny small country with no power at all, with an economic juggernaut like Germany under the same rules, it simply doesn't make any sense at all. And we can see what's happened to Greece, absolutely pummeled. And I, I don't know what Syriza is going to accomplish, but I don't see how it can possibly get Greece out of the mess that it's in well, unless it regains its sovereign independence. Well, just as regards to the mess, I mean, when they started on, on this uh, business, uh, the GDP um, debt of the government was about 120%, which is that unrepayable. The, it is now shifting beyond 175 to 178, will soon be touching 180%. It is absolutely preposterous. And uh, to answer your question, is, is they, the, the, it, the whole structure is breaking. This idea that it will come back into balance is completely wrong. The debt levels in country after country after country, right the way around the world, uh, since 2007, 2008, those debt levels have increased. So the, all the austerity um, policy it doesn't actually uh, work. And so my answer to your question is they will have no choice but to get out. Uh, they will be forced out, and that is then their opportunity to behave like Iceland did. But, Steve, once they're out, it is still a question as to whether the government can address the situation and um, you will know how to use its own money supply for what will have to still be, if it's going to work, a market economy, but one in which the productive capacity is generated and spread to everybody. There's a lot in what uh, Syriza says that they really do understand that, but whether in practice they know the techniques to do it, otherwise they might end up in sort of some sort of outdated, uh, rigid uh, command economy. And that would be absolute disaster. But my feeling is they've got to come out of it. And Steve, quick one on there is that UKIP in the U, U, U we're not in the euro, um, but we are in Europe. And they want to come out of Europe. And a lot of people are going to vote for them because it's a sort of protest vote. But UKIP does not have any serious original economic thinking. And more than anything else, that is what is required at the moment. Steve, can I move on to the President Obama and his latest announcement, which he made today? You mean about uh, the authorization he wants from Congress or something well, else? Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, please uh, do. Please do. Uh, he, he is uh, saying uh, that subject to limitations... And then you actually start looking at it, you realize there are no limitations of what he's saying. There's, he's going to um, uh, ask authorization for putting in, in troops. And, of course, the Republicans, immediately led by Senator, uh, well, influenced by Senator John Insane McCain uh, and crew, um, and Gre Lindsley Graham and all the rest of them, um, they will immediately uh, go for this. But... There is no geographical limitation of what he's proposing. And we, one could go with it and say, well, they're trying to do something if it wasn't for the fact that they are not the solution. They are the cause of the problem. And if this was recognition 
that America had armed, finance, trained, and guided by Zionism, which wants to smash up all these states, that America was largely responsible. One would say, good. If there was any recognition uh, that um, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is responsible, and is at this moment is putting up money and is training people, etc. That would be fine. If there was any recognition that American policy is still to smash up the only hope for a defeat for Daesh ISIL is, in fact, the Assad regime, which, by the way, Steve, there's no doubt if there was an election, rightly or wrongly, as regards the morality of it, he would get re-elected left, right, and centre as being the only possibility for a stable. That's Syria? exactly right. That's exactly um, right. He won in June with an independently monitored election with 89% of the vote. Uh, the the, the uh, Syrian people don't want anybody else but him. And the longer the war goes on, the stronger his support gets. And if I was a Syrian, I would vote for Bashar Assad and nobody exactly. else. And then if there was then any recognition that... The other group on the ground there doing solidly opposed to Daesh, uh, which is, of course, Hezbollah, which is essentially a nationalist movement inside Lebanon. But they have been now going across, I think, as I understand it, with the agreement of the, um, of the Syrian government, though the Syrian government probably not admitting it. Um, that, that, that if there was any tool of this, uh, any sort of, sorry, any um, recognition of this, then we would begin to think there was some hope, but there's none. The USA thinks that it's going to solve it all by military action. Now, Steve, if I had to say for one thing, I would say overthrow the government in Saudi Arabia and all the poison which comes out from the protection of these ghastly autocratic regimes. Because, you see, Daesh, in a peculiarly twisted way, is the product, more than anything else, uh, not even of, of the West, it is the product of the oppressions within the societies. I mean, we know that the, the sort of the great force, the great psychological force, is Saudi. And it is the in the madrasas and in the beliefs of Oh, uh, of an extreme Islam, it's come from the schools and the institutions. And a lot of them are in the UK receiving all these millions of pounds worth from Saudi for promulgating these things. And you just thinking you can defeat it military. I mean, please tell me another. It is absolute preposterous. And so Obama is failing to solve the thing, won't grasp the nettle. He has to turn around American policy. And that means turn around, and he has to turn around and, and turn on Israel. Because behind this American policy is Israel's desire to put the whole of the Middle East into permanent chaos, plus, of course, the desire of your military-industrial complex to have permanent war. But it's very, very serious stuff. It's getting out of control. Americans, uh, what he's proposing now, will make the situation worse. And, Steve, I want to say this, is that it is treachery, treason, for your that man Boner Boner is it the head of the uh, yes. in the Senate yes. uh, to have invited uh, Netanyahu, and in doing so to go straight to actually to give a V sign to his own president. 
I mean, you know, absolutely extraordinary. I think it may actually go wrong for Netanyahu when he turns up and makes a rabbiting speech uh, showing one of his uh, bombs and saying that we must do all these nasty <laughs> things against Iran. I mean, you've got, for heaven's sake, you've got 16 intelligence agents, and all the time they're saying Iran is not making a bomb. And so at some stage, Steve, at some point, all this is going to blow up in the face of the Republicans and Netanyahu. And it may be that when Netanyahu comes, because it is a preposterous situation, and I think the Europeans have now had enough, you know. They've had enough of the American changing the goalposts all the time. Obama's putting on more sanctions. Obama's saying all options are on the table. If your intelligence agents consistently, uh, agencies consistently say that Iran is not creating an atomic bomb, it is not creating an atomic bomb. And just one quick one, Steve. When all this started, I'm not quite sure how long ago, but there were only 200 um, of those um, things that go round and round. Uh, in the nuclear program. Um, what are they called? A circular oh, centrifuges. 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 There's now 19,000 of them. And that is the effect of sanctioning Iran. And people ought to remember that Iran is a colossally technologically advanced uh, society. If you want to change Iran, it's quite simple. Remove all sanctions and create that uh, deal with them in a normal way. Ronnie, I wish we had more time. The music means I have to sign off. But indeed, uh, I, I, I hope uh, uh, Netanyahu gets his ears boxed in Washington. Anyway, I look forward to more next month, Rodney. We will continue this discussion. Okay, see. Goodbye. Thank you, Rodney.